Well, we managed to wrestle back control of the eagle this week from Pinky and the Brain. The two cartoon mice from the hit animated series Animaniacs are back to planning world domination, and we are back to bringing you a weekly glimpse into the Times Union newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you didn't get a chance to listen last week to our episode, I highly encourage you to go back and listen, especially if you're a fan of the Animaniacs. Rob Paulson and Maurice LaMarche, the two voiceover artists who are the voices of Pinky and the Brain and several other characters, they were just absolutely delightful. Pinky, are you pondering what I'm pondering? I think so, Brain. But the Beagle podcast? Is this a podcast about small dogs? Pinky, they're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. You dolt. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. We're going to start this episode with some country music. A topic I'll admit I don't know too much about, but I'm really thrilled to have talked to this week's guest on our podcast. Like a dollar in my pocket burning in my chest grammy nominated singer songwriter david nail is headed to the capital region this week he's performing at universal preservation hall on march 2nd the nashville-based artist hit the scene in 2002 and since then has released four albums and notched number one spots on the hot country songs and country airplay charts he's played the grand old opry and all over the country He's most known for hits like Let It Rain and Whatever She's Got. Nail has also been outspoken in recent years about his personal battle with depression. I got a chance to connect with David Nail this week before he headed to New York. Here's our conversation. I'll give her the best of me if you'll give her away. Have you ever have you ever been up here to upstate New York at all? I have, yes. Okay. I've been fortunate over the years. You know, I've been doing this a long time, so I've I've pretty much played not necessarily in every town or every city, but I've I've been to every state and played most every state multiple times. And that's kind of one of the perks of this gig is getting to travel around and see places that otherwise, you know, I would have never probably gone to. Absolutely. Do you remember anything about the last time you were here? I know it's beautiful, I, and I did an interview a couple of weeks ago, um, and they were talking, they were going on and on about the, the venue and how neat and unique it was, and so I'm obviously, you know, very excited to get back. Uh, I was literally, before I called, just checking the weather to make sure that I was going to have the proper clothing, <laughs> but it looks like you're going to start having like a little bit of a warm kind of springy week ahead of you so it's it's i don't have to bring like the the ski jacket or anything hopefully yeah yeah. Uh, i don't don't think it's going to be too much different from nashville you don't tend to consider yourself a typical country star right i like to think that you know i'm a really bad you know if at any point in my life if i was ever considered a celebrity i was a really bad one just because i've always just sort of lived my life as if i as I did when I was 18 years old. And if I wanted to go to Walmart, I went to Walmart. If I wanted to go to Target, I went to Target. If I wanted to go out to dinner, I'd go out to dinner. And I just sort of completely like lose sight of the fact that someone may have bought one of my records or someone may have sent a picture of me and someone may recognize me. It just, 
it seems so foreign to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially like since I've had kids, you know, you're so, obviously so occupied with everything going on and praying that they don't lose their minds in a store or in a restaurant or whatever. <laughs> that That's the farthest thing from your mind. Sure. But if there was anything that I could pat myself on the back about over the course of my career, I would say that I've, I've stayed pretty grounded and I, I've never really felt like like I've drank my own Kool-Aid. Now, you've also been pretty outspoken about some of the, you know, struggles you've had with with mental health as well. Is that still important to to kind of talk about publicly for you? Yes. I mean, I, you know, obviously I don't talk about I mean, there was a period of you know my career where it was very prevalent and very much the focus. And I think, you know, for whatever reason, I was one of the first people to sort of come out and be like, look, like I sort of did it because as I it's sort of an apology because I felt like I had been living this lie for 10 years of I'm this terrible actor. Like I I thought I was like putting on this really good front. And then once I realized how miserable I was and how much I'd been, how long I'd been suffering from it and how long I'd like let all these people around me have to deal with, you know, me dealing with all these things, you know, I sort of felt like I needed to, to, to come out and just say, Hey, like, if you've ever saw me and you've ever wondered, like, this is why mm-hmm. you probably were wondering. And and also, most importantly, you know, I think like anybody, you know, when you when you begin to talk about something, it's it's just sort of a way of healing and a sort of a way of dealing with what's going on. And and I was just at such a rock bottom place. I wasn't exactly sure like where my career was going to go or if that was going to kill my career or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I was just at such a place where like, if I didn't figure things out, if I didn't seek out help, if I didn't get some help, then there was going to be a really, really bad ending. Mm -hmm. Well, it takes a lot of strength to, to have done that, to speak out kind of publicly and, you know, kind of bear all for, for the public, you know, especially when you're in your kind of a high profile place. Um, I want to talk to you about your songwriting process. Like, what is that like when you sit down and you're, do you feel pressure to come up with something or is it like an inspiration that it comes to you in the shower? Like, how does that, how does that process work for you? I think it changes, you know, obviously there's, I've been co-writing some over the last few months. Um, and I co-wrote, I co-wrote quite a bit last year. And so when you do that, you know, you sit down, you meet somebody at 1030 or 11 o'clock in the morning and you sit down and you small talk for a while. And it's like, hey, what do we want to say today? Mm-hmm. It's it's very like we're at a factory and this is this is how our day is going to go. This is what we're going to do. And obviously there are like some amazing songs that come from those very like factory like settings and so. Mm-hmm. But for me, I feel like the songs, especially the songs I've written by myself, you know, um, at least two days a week, all my kids are in school. So I usually come back and sit where I'm at right now in my office and I'll just play guitar and listen to music and just sort of brainstorm and see if there's anything that is weighing on me. Uh, and sometimes, you know, there's songs appear and sometimes the dog will bark and you'll get sidetracked. And the next thing you know, like you're completely like distracted from what you were intending to do. But I feel like the best songs, especially the best songs that I've written by myself, I feel like you sort of like find yourself with a guitar and you sort of find yourself in a place and you find yourself thinking about a certain thing, especially this new song that's coming out, you know, in a few weeks, the song that I wrote about my grandfatherhood, 
who had passed away a few years ago. And so normally I think you think, well, when something that traumatic happens, like you'll probably write about it right away. You know, Mm -hmm. it'll be something that's really weighing on you. And it wasn't until two or three years later that I sat down and, and I can remember just this phrase of, if I could call, if I could call my grandfather, you know, what would I say right now? Well, I'd probably, you know, kind of beat around the bush and I wouldn't exactly tell him exactly how I was feeling. I would, and I, I remember that one sort of did stop me in my tracks and kind of was like, okay, wow, where is this coming from? Why now? Mm-hmm. But I remember running into the bedroom and telling my wife, I was like, listen to this, like so far. And she was just like, oh, that's going to be a tough one to write, you know, just from an emotional standpoint. Sure. But, you know, I mean, that song specifically was the first song probably in my career where I really had to like go back and like look at it with, you know, kind of pick through it with like a fine tooth comb, like just really analyze it and probably overanalyze it. I mean, it's probably done way before I said it was done, but I just wanted to be so perfect. And, but it changes, you know, some of them, like you hear people say, I've always called people out, you know, I feel like every great song, everybody always goes, Oh man, we wrote it in 10 minutes. <laughs> you know, I yeah. mean, I'm like, there's no way that that's always the case. You know, sure. no one ever goes, man, this took six months to write. You know, it's like, for some reason that the great songs always have to be the ones that like hit you over the head and you wrote like, in, you know, before lunch. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I've had songs that happen like that, mm-hmm. but those are few and far between. I feel like the majority of them, I mean, the, some of the best uh, co-writers that I've ever had the privilege to work with have written, you know, some really, truly like legendary songs. I've always looked at it like a, it's a craft, you know, and you've got to really work at it like, and make sure that it's right. You know, it's saying exactly what you want to say and that, that the listener is going to listen to it and know exactly where you are. And, and they worked really slow. And, and I feel like, especially nowadays, you know, you have a lot of people that will write twice a day. You know, it's like it's sort of like speed dating. It's like, hey, like, we got to come in and write this song in three hours or else, like, it's just a wasted morning, you know? And Yeah, that's a lot of pressure. Uh, it is. And I, I feel like that with me, I just started working with somebody who yeah, I'd never worked with before. And, you know, you're sort of trying to feel people out and yeah. uh, and get to know people. And, and uh, I didn't really know this particular person that well. And so it was sort of like, you know, I'm 44 years old and I'm sitting across the, the room from somebody. And, and it was like the first time I'd ever written a song before. I was like, well, am I supposed to say something? Is it supposed <laughs> to be my idea? Like, should I play something right now? Like, wow. Cause I'm trying to get to know the person. And, but there was a, there was a point where you're sort of looking at each other like, okay, are we going to like just sit here and talk or are we going to like actually do something? You're right. It does sound um, like speed and, dating. <laughs> and luckily something did come of it and it's actually bloomed into something. I think, I think that's going to be really special down the road, but it was like super awkward and uncomfortable at first because I've never met this person before in my life. And like, suddenly it was a lot like going to the shrink for the first time. Cause you're like, all right, I'm not going to waste any time here. This is where I'm at. This is what I'm feeling. This is how I got here. Like, I'm just going to spill my guts out, like yeah. not waste any of your time. Yeah. It was sort of like that in a lot of ways because you're like, you know, I don't want to waste this person's time, but I also feel like I need to at least know what their last name is before we start and write a song. <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting insight. Not not something that, you know, me as an outsider would ever really kind of think about when it came to that process. 
Can you kind of tell the folks that are going to come to see you on Saturday at Universal Preservation Hall? Can you just sort of give us a preview of what what to expect for the show? Well, I should never say this, but I always feel obligated to. These are this is a very like intimate, casual. I don't say loose as it like it's in a bad way. It's not loose like a loose show. Like we're just up there messing around, but. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite shows growing up was a show called VH1 Storytellers. And so these, we call them power acoustic shows. There are electric instruments on stage, so it's not entirely acoustic. But um, it's very much of a, an intimate, like, I, I'll give a little story behind certain songs and, um, you know, inter- interact with the crowd. And, and sometimes there's dialogue between me and people and, um, but it's just very, it's my favorite type of show. I feel like it fits me. It fits my personality. Um, I'm a very private person. I'm a very, um, keep things close to, you know, in my little circle, but for whatever reason, these type of shows and I get up on stage, I'm just sort of like an open book mm-hmm. and, and I just, uh, really enjoy sharing some of the stories because I feel like growing up, that was the stuff that I was really drawn to, you know, those shows where people would get interviewed and they'd tell different stories, you know, whether the song was inspired by their wife or was inspired by how they grew up or was inspired by a friendship or, Mm -hmm. you know, a broken heart or whatever. Like I was always wanting to know like what they were thinking. And I still listen to music like that and try to get into the person's head. And so this is sort of a type of show where you can, you don't really have to get in my head because I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you where I was when I wrote it. I'm going to tell you, you know, and not every song. So it's not, I don't want people to think like, Oh man, this guy's going to talk for two hours. (laughs) I do actually sing, you know, it's, but you know, some of the songs that were hits, you know, I'll give, you know, I feel like that have unique stories that I think people will be drawn to or interested in, you know I mean? Um, I feel like that those, are appropriate um mm. and it's just fun man it's 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 loose like um i've got a great group of guys that play with me and it's we feed off each other so well and it's just a blast and um you know I'm, i shouldn't say that like any specific show or any type of show is my favorite but i just have i feel like it fits my personality so well that i just really enjoy it and have a lot of fun doing it well, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for speaking to me. This is this has been great. Thank you so much. I'll give her the best of me if you'll give her away. David Nail's new single comes out March 15th. He's performing March 2nd at Universal Preservation Hall. Tickets at proctors.org. We're going to take a short break now, but when we come back, we will check in with Times Union Editor-in-Chief Casey Seiler for a riveting conversation about redistricting. Stay tuned. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in your award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union subscriber today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome back 
You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Marshall. We are bringing back our editor-in-chief, Casey Seiler, for the first time in a long time on the Eagle podcast. We're really excited to have you back. Let's talk about a couple of the sort of top headlines that we've been following in the last week or so. All right. So last week marked one year since a young man was killed in a horrific car crash that involved a Troy police officer. Uh, why are we talking about this one year later? What's, what's important about this story? Well, um, as you noted, it has been a year since the death of Sabi Al-Kawi, who was at the time on the night of February 22nd, 2023, was working as a pizza delivery worker. And he was proceeding through a green light at the corner of Husik and 15th Street in Troy. Anybody who's familiar with Troy um, knows that Husik Street is a busy, busy thoroughfare. This corner is a blind intersection. And uh, as Mr. L.L. Cowie proceeded through the green light, he was struck by the third of three Troy police cars that were responding to a call for a domestic incident. The police officer, Justin Burns, was going, but in the seconds before the impact, was going well more than 80 miles per hour, struck Mr. Alokawi's Honda on the driver's side. Of course, both vehicles were obviously totaled. Mr. Alokawi, he was struck with such force that he was he was killed almost immediately, uh, as far as we know. The police officer walked away from the crash with just minor injuries. And the question here, many of the questions raised involve whether or not the officer acted with reckless disregard. So far, he has faced no charges, although the attorney general's office has been looking into this case for more than a year. Uh, It has now been eight months since a state police analysis of this incident concluded that, of course, it was the officer going through a red light at a very high rate of speed that was the primary cause of the crash. Now, Brendan Lyons, who has done most of the reporting that we have done on this case, constantly chipping away in the face of, uh, I think it's fair to say, a lot of stonewalling from Troy officials, including the administration, the uh, recently uh, departed administration of Mayor Patrick Madden, sat down with um, Sabi Al-Kawi's family, his father, his um, brothers, and his widow and his two young children. He had uh, two uh, young twin sons and a, a third child from a, from a previous relationship. And the story that they told, I think, gave the clearest portrait that I think we have of who this young man was. Mr. Alakawi, by all accounts, was the kind of, as they described it, the master planner for his family. He was the one who would call them up and say, hey, the roads are, are treacherous tonight. You know, don't, don't go out that he uh, had essentially set aside or paused his own education, his desire to become a medical worker uh, in order for his wife to pursue her own education, family that had emigrated from Iraq, then to Egypt, or actually Iraq, then to Syria, then to Egypt, uh, and then to the U.S., it's just a heartbreaking, the whole thing is a heartbreaking story, including the, the father's description of, of what happened that night after they got the bad news that he had been grievously injured from a friend of the family. The Times Union will continue to report on all aspects of this, not only this incident, 
but other police crashes uh, in Troy and elsewhere. We have a significant investigation um, headed up by uh, Emily Munson that will um, appear online and be in the paper this coming weekend. And we hope folks will check that out as well, because this incident is it, it is uh, based on everything we have learned. It's not just the case of a cop who might have made a very, very bad decision or a series of very bad decisions that night. It also speaks to leadership, command and control policies involving the Troy Police Department and, you know, uh, frankly, uh, police departments uh, around the state and around the nation, too. Now, I also want to point out that on timesunion.com and as part of the coverage that we've done of this, uh, we have acquired several videos that show several different angles. Yeah, and the, the story that we're talking about includes new or newly um, released or newly unearthed dash cam video from a driver who was heading up Hoosick Street as um, the officer was barreling down Hoosick Street. And you can see very clearly that the officer went through a red light. Uh, you know, the vantage point on the impact itself is about a block away, but it's very clear what happened. Yes. Um, there is a sort of disclaimer that these videos may be disturbing to watch. They're not visceral. However, it does. You can see the car crash. So. You can see the vehicles. You can't, yeah. thank goodness, see anything else. Right. Um, all right. So over to timesunion.com for that. However, I want to stay with our coverage of the Troy police because there is another story that Brendan has reported this week that involves the Troy police. So can you tell us about that one? Yes. This was back in December when a group of Troy police cars uh, essentially swarmed a state police vehicle in the parking lot of a, a supermarket in Troy including messages that were delivered by one of the Troy police officers telling the state police to essentially, you know, leave our city. An embarrassing incident for Chief Dan DeWolf as he fully admitted that this was not cool, not proper. This type of, of kind of turf-mindedness, as it were, is not unheard of in the world of uh, local police and state police interactions, or for that matter, uh, kind of county sheriff versus, you know, versus city police. But it's it's just an absolutely unbelievable piece of behavior. Apologies were made to the state police. This is obviously the subject of an internal investigation. The officers involved are facing discipline. We'll see what kind of discipline they actually get. But what, what is amazing to me, Jess, is that a police department that is already under scrutiny, not only for the Alakawi collision, but for another of other incidents, many of which the Times Union has written about, that officers would feel empowered to pull this kind of juvenile behavior. It just, it absolutely blows my mind. Mm. Well, we'll be watching those stories from Brendan um, in the weeks and months to come. Let's um, jump over to state politics now for a moment. Where the supermajority of uh, Democrats, they proposed some changes yet again uh, to congressional districts, yes. which has been a story for a while for us. Um, what's the latest? Okay. And I preface all this by noting that redistricting is the topic, maybe more than any other in state government, that is extremely boring. <laughs> And extremely important. Yes. In other words, this is the, the drawing of the lines that determine who you are going to be voting for, for uh, the Assembly and the Senate, but also, and more to the point here, 
congressional races. The congressional lines are are at issue here. Okay, so if you will allow me, absolutely, um, take it away. The, okay, the state about a decade ago put in place and voters approved a system whereby the lines are supposed to be drawn by a bar, bipartisan independent redistricting commission. That is its official name. So in 2020 like many bipartisan bodies before them, including the Board of Elections, deadlocked on the creation of the maps. So the Democratic controlled legislature drew their own maps. Those maps became the subject of a court challenge because uh, Republicans argued that they were an example of gerrymandering. That is, you know, chopping up uh, districts for a partisan advantage. The case went all the way up to the Court of Appeals. The Court of Appeals, a differently constituted Court of Appeals than the one we have right now, ruled narrowly that, um, yes, these lines were gerrymandered. And so a court-appointed special master got to draw the congressional lines. All right. The special master's lines were in place for the 2022 election when, by the way, Republicans did better in New York than they were expected to. And of course, we all know how narrowly, razor thin, divided the Republican majority is in Congress. So brings us up to just recently when a Democratic challenge said, hey, you know what? We went through all this stuff two years ago, but you know what? The Independent Redistricting Commission ought to get another chance to draw those congressional lines. Let's do it again. And that case came all the way back up to the Court of Appeals again. And a differently constituted Court of Appeals under a new chief judge said, you know what? We agree. We think the, the IRC should get another bite at that congressional apple. So the IRC, obviously wounded by having failed to do their job, having been deadlocked two years ago, went back at their work and drew lines, you know, new lines that weren't a radical change from what the special master did and um, approved them by a vote of, I believe, eight to one with only one dissenting voice on the commission. Okay, great. We have achieved bipartisan agreement. So those lines, that congressional map has to get approved by the legislature. Guess what, Jess? I think I know what you're going to say. Yes. Democrats in the assembly rejected the lines. And as we sit here on Wednesday are preparing, they're, they're I believe, waiting for the, le the, the uh, legislation to age to approve new lines. Of course, Republicans are irate. But the interesting thing is that the new maps, as we read them, based on the analysis of our very smart Capitol Bureau, including, you know, Josh Solomon, who has been paying a ton of attention to this stuff, is that the, the new Democratic drawn uh, sort of amended lines are not radically different. They are tweaked. It is not a wholesale, you know, get out your scissors. We're going to we're going to draw this thing again. In other words, the the assembly is set to, you know, pass these lines whether or not this legislative reinvolvement in the process prompts a new Republican challenge. We'll have to to wait and see. But of course, if there's more litigation, it could cause real chaos in the petitioning certainly for those those congressional races, everybody will remember two years ago, this caused us to have one more primary day uh, in New York than, than we were supposed to have because basically because of the special master's work, it pushed everything back. 
That was going to be my next question. We're looking at a pretty big election year come November and everything that's going to lead up to that kind of makes redistricting one of the most important things that you need to pay attention to. It is. But once again, Jess, and I acknowledge this is super boring stuff. (laughs) It's all based on when you are doing redistricting, it involves population roles, ethnic makeup, you know, block by block uh, questions about whether or not a mini population ought to be in this district or that district. It's completely fascinating for political junkies. And the rest of the world is just like, who am I supposed to vote? You know, tell me the race or the district that I'm supposed to be voting in. You know, is the city of Albany part of a district that also includes a bunch of farmland or is it like a distinct city? And you could, you know, that that's the kind of question, the mix of of kind of urban. Are you diluting minority votes? That that type of thing. Now, other states have done gerrymandering as well. Both parties do it. Republicans in red states have been very, very aggressive about it. And it's resulted in a number of court cases that have gone all the way up to the federal Supreme Court. But here in New York, we're just we're just hoping to keep things calm. That is definitely something that we will come back to you to explain further as this election year draws out. <laughs> Redistricting corner with Casey. Exactly. I'm sure it will get like soap opera fantastic. So thank you so much for coming back and joining us. Uh, we missed you and we will look forward to talking to you again. Thanks, Jess. Governor Kathy Hochul approved the new congressional map Wednesday, just after this conversation was recorded. New York Democrats are now poised to pick up at least one additional seat in the House. You can see the redistricting maps before and after the changes at timesunion.com. And you can read more about all of the stories and issues that we discuss on this podcast there as well, or on any of our social channels, Facebook, Threads, Instagram, and YouTube. Hit us up. That's it for this week. We will be back next week with more from inside the newsroom. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by myself, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. Special thanks to Casey Seiler for his contribution to this episode.